Hello, my name is John Smetank, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest and with respect is is Alicia Bassett. Alicia is a multi-talented person because we're going to talk about all of it. She's a, a pianist, a poet, a, and a bird watcher. Get, wait till we talk about that. Uh, but she's also the author of now two books, uh, Murder on, I'm sorry, Smile Beach Murder, and a, a new book coming out called Murder on Mustang Beach. We'll be talking with her about that wide range of things. This is John Smetank on With Respect, and we'll be right back. So, Alicia, how are you today? I'm doing really good. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. I, I enjoyed reading your book, Smile Beach Murder. Um, and I'm going to talk in a little bit about later about uh, how that compares to uh, oh, different kinds of settings that uh, uh, some of my listeners, many of my listeners, will be uh, uh, familiar with. But we'll get into that in a middle. But where are you from originally? I am from Holden, Massachusetts. It's in the central Mass area, so about an hour west of Boston, and it's north of the city of Worcester. I had a cousin who lived in the western, you have some mountains in western uh, Massachusetts, as I recall, and or at least hills, large hills, and uh, he lived back there after he retired from <clears throat> working with the government. It's a pretty area. The whole state is has a lot to recommend it. Lots I know. Of pretty natural areas. You're, you're right. It, um, it's not all Boston. Uh, it's yeah. just a <laughs> wide range of cultures and, and, uh, and uh, historical sites and geogra- geography. So yeah. but how did you get into writing? I mean, you, you, we'll talk about the writing first. Um, wh- what tr- attracted you to writing? And, you know, where'd you start at it? High school? Grammar school? Crib? I, <laughs> closer to crib. I was eight years old. Actually, it was my eighth birthday. And my parents gave me a journal, a lined blank journal for my birthday. I don't recall having written anything much before that, but my, <coughs> my mother must have seen something because she gave me this journal and a pen and I was off and I filled it up within a matter of months, um, just poems and character sketches and journal entries, diary entries, things like that. And so I was, I was really young. I was, I was eight years old when I first decided, when I first knew it wasn't really a decision. It was just sort of something that took hold of me, but that's when I knew that I wanted to be a writer. It just felt really electrifying and uh, it felt like a comfort to go to the page and copy down these things that I was thinking and feeling. Around the same time, uh, my grandparents had a farm in Connecticut, in the northeast corner of Connecticut. They had, as I recall, I think they had about 80 acres, and they decided to sell the land. And my aunts and uncles and my father um, they were, there was a lot of emotion around this. It was, it, it was a really complicated issue for them, just having to say goodbye to the land and the farmhouse where they grew up. I don't think I fully grasped everything that was going on as an eight-year-old, but I did understand that it was a, it was a big deal emotionally for everybody in my family. So there was a one big last gathering at the farmhouse to say goodbye to the farmhouse, big family reunion type thing. And I wrote a poem 
in that very journal um, about the farmhouse and it was about old keys and new keys unlocking new doors and um, I, I read it I, I recited it out loud to my family at this gathering and everyone clapped politely and um, I, I don't share that story to suggest that I was some kind of child prodigy poet <laughs> mm-hmm. I share the story because it, I had a very early experience with the joy of sharing something that I had created. And I, I wouldn't have had the vocabulary for it back then, of course, but I got this feeling that, wow, you know, I, I made art and I shared it with people that I love and I felt like I made a connection and I felt like I communicated something and, and I, and they felt connected to me. And it was just a, it was a moment where I, I, really understood that words were powerful and that I wanted to make, I wanted to pursue that as much as I could with my life. So, you know, that's interesting because, uh, how old were you when, when this happened? I was probably no older than nine years old, eight or nine years old. One of the things that, uh, is a misunderstood, uh, phenomenon, I think is the, uh, ability, the pers- uh, to, of a child uh, to very young, to uncluttered by a lot of um, history, uh, to mm-hmm. perceive emotions in the people around them. Um, they yes. just absorb that, and they and it sounds like that's what you did. You were at this really emotion-filled event, and I can I can understand exactly what you're talking about. Um, same several thing happened in my life, but. Um, how you could absorb that emotion and then put it back on paper somehow. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I think probably a lot of kids are much more sensitive than we give them credit for. And, uh, I I was a sensitive kid for sure. And, um, yeah, that, that really made an impression on me. And I, shortly thereafter, I, I went into the fourth grade and I had a teacher named Mr. Moran was very influential he I'm sure he taught us the full range of fourth grade cur- curriculum but the thing that I remember the most about his class was his emphasis on reading and writing and storytelling and um, he was the first person to encourage me to write um, directly besides my mother and my and my father who gave me that journal so um, he was also a big uh, influence on my writing very early on so it's it's interesting. I, I I was really very young when when all the when, when writing found me, you know, mm-hmm. and when I found writing. No, how about your mom and dad? What uh, what were they? Uh, what do they do that that uh, uh, helped you guys? Uh, you did you have brothers, sisters? Or were they employed? What what's the deal? Mm-hmm. I am the youngest of three. My brother and sister are older than me by nine and eleven years. So. I was I was the extreme baby of the mm-hmm. family, <laughs> and uh, my parents were both employed. My mother was a nurse, and my father was a physician, and they were both really big readers. Um, my father had a home office, and it was packed floor to ceiling with books. Of course, they were books about medicine and science and history, nothing that really particularly interested me, but... I do think there was something to just being surrounded by his library of books that made an impression on me very early on that, you know, I lived in a household that valued books and reading. Um, We had two sets of encyclopedia. We had the, the Encyclopedia Britannica for adults and then the one for kids. And I was, I was the weirdo kid that used to come home from school and just read the encyclopedia for for kicks. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would do a comparative study. You know, I would look up whales and the adults <laughs> encyclopedia and then whales and the kids and compare and contrast. Um, my mother read to me uh, gro- every night growing up, and I, I was particularly fond of James and the Giant Peach. She must have read me that book six or seven times through, throughout the years. Mm-hmm. And um, my parents are always reading the newspaper and 
I clearly remember, I'm not sure how old I was, but back in the day, you know, the Sunday paper used to be three inches thick. And I remember when color ink, the, the very first time we had color ink in the mm -hmm. newspaper and it was just, it was so fabulous and exciting. And, you know, I, I have good memories of sitting on the back porch on summer mornings and waiting for my parents to be done with the arts and entertainment section mm -hmm. or the obituaries. I used to also <laughs> like to read the obituaries because I was a morbid child, but you can get lots of inspiration at reading, reading the obituaries. So yeah, we would share the paper. Um, the bookmobile used to come through my neighborhood. That was a, that was a big influence also very exciting when the bookmobile rolled around. So, um, and then of course the attic was full of hand-me-down books that my brother and sister had read. So um, mm -hmm. I, I still have my brother's copy of Watership Down, one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. And I still have my sister's uh, full set of Anne of Green Gables, another one of my mm -hmm. favorite series. So yeah, books and words and reading um, were a big thing growing up. And my my family had a big influence on that. Well, I, you, you're from... Uh, a state which is known um, to, by popular culture as being urban, but as we already discussed, there's it's uh, there's also this wide variety of rural and uh, and oh I'll, I'll call it suburban, but uh, less populated but still um, populated population centers. What what was the town like that, that you grew up in? Was that a, was that a a suburb or a, a the country or what? It was a suburb. Um, it's it's much Holden is much more of a bedroom community now than it used to be when I was growing up. But back in the seventies and eighties, I'd say it was closer to its farming and rural roots. And uh, my parents' house backed up to a watershed property that that could never be built on. So mm -hmm. it's conservation land. And there used to be trails behind the house mm. and the stream. And so after, you know, I, I was a latchkey kid. I would, I would let myself into the house after school, read the encyclopedia, and then <laughs> I would uh, go outside and hit the trails and talk to trees and splash around in the stream and, you know, make up stories about the elves that lived in the woods and, you know, mm -hmm. all, all kinds of things that kids do. So I was, I felt like I had a very woodsy kind of upbringing um and actually that fourth grade teacher that i mentioned mr moran he was the first teacher to introduce me to the works of robert frost oh gosh and, I love my favorite oh uh, mine too mine too gosh he's so great and um i actually uh i can still recite by heart uh stopping by woods <laughs> on a snowy evening by Robert Frost, thanks I, to Bob Moran. But. Let me let me stop you right there because I was uh, looking at a book in our local bookstore, small town bookstore, and I was looking for a gift for my six year old granddaughter, or fifth at that point, fifth year, uh, five year old granddaughter, and uh, so I talked to the clerk and she said, uh, I, "I said, is there something here that's really interesting that I can you know relate to my my granddaughter?" And she said, well, why don't you try this? And it was a book called Stopping by the Woods. Mm. And it was Robert Frost, his poem, and it was put to a, in a child's, uh, a child's book with interesting, fascinating uh, sketches, uh, colored sketches of uh, this fellow who was going out to, uh, uh, to go out in the woods, whose who's Whose woods are these? Um, I do not know, but he lives in the village I know. And you, it goes on. Every single play was just great. So I read it to my, my granddaughter, the older granddaughter, and the younger one, who was two years younger, she got fascinated by it. And so now every time they come over to the house, the first thing they wanted to read is, can we, can we do Stopping by the Woods? I oh, love, I love this book. And... <laughs> and it's interesting because when her, their mom, uh, my daughter, was young, I would read uh, at night to put her to sleep uh, all different kinds of things. But uh, one of the poems by Robert Frost and some by 
uh, Edgar Allan Poe. And it's, there is a rhythm which, yes. which just catches their attention. Uh, my daughter yes. could, could rep- repeat uh, st- uh, The Raven for a long, or Jabberwocky because there's an interesting thing. In fact, she got stuck in eighth grade or seventh grade. One of her English professors said, anybody here heard of Jabberwocky? Well, no hands raised up except my daughter. And she said, Carrie, really? And Carrie said, yes, twas brillig and the slithy toves a gyre and gimbal in the wave. All mimsy were the... And, I th- and she said, where would you learn these? My father forced me to listen to that. <laughs> but at any rate. Um, but, but so that's a fascinating thing. Robert Frost catches, uh, it's something that catches adults and it catches kids because of its simplicity. Yeah, I, I think you really hit on something too about the rhythm of the language and something about, um, you can almost hear the way people speak, you know, this is something very colloquial about his writing. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's written down, it, it sounds like spoken language when you read it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. um I had a I had an early attraction to the Raven also, and I have a memory of being in eighth grade English class, and the assignment was to copy down a poem, any poem, published poem, and and turn it in for for extra credit. And so all my classmates were picking haikus, and you know very short poems, mm-hmm. and of course I picked the Raven, <laughs> which is probably ten thousand words long, and I filled up you know two exam booklets <laughs> down the Raven. So that's how that's how dorky I was. But yeah, yeah um, there's something about the rhythm that I think for certain kinds of developing brains, um, it's attractive and it's, yeah. and it's appealing. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Alicia uh, Bissett, who is the author of a, a couple of books, Smile Beach Murder, and which also another one coming out soon is Murder on Mustang Beach. But she's got many other skills, which we're going to be talking about in just a moment. This is John Spatanka and With Respect, and we will be right back. back on with respect with Alicia Bissett, who is an author, uh, Smile Beach Murder. That, sound, that sounds cool. Uh, she's also a pianist and many other things, and we've been talking about poetry that she started writing when she was a kid. This is John Smetanka. Okay. You were a poet. You wrote. You filled up your your copy book, your uh, with uh, with poetry. You filled up your diary book um, with things. How do you get into the pianist part? And you're you, that's one of your big skills. You know, it's funny. Um, I think my eighth year of life was a big year for me because, as I recall, that's when uh, we got a piano. It was an old Baldwin upright. And I started taking piano lessons from a woman who lived down the street. And, uh, you know, I I would just go once a week for, I think it was just a half an hour, maybe an hour. And uh, I continued that up until high school. And then when I was in high school, I got into singing. Um, I never... I never quite mastered singing and playing piano at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) But I I continued... um, playing piano just on my own um at one point i was pretty good at sight reading um but i think if you put a piece of sheet music in front of me now it would be really uh intimidating i'm not it it would take me a long time to figure it out um so i can't really read music very well anymore um but i still have a piano and i still play um and I started composing my own music uh, shortly after I got married. So I got married when I was 21. Mm-hmm. And 
I started composing my own music when I was probably 22, 23. So, yeah. Now, have you have you actually recorded anything? I have. I have four albums out. Uh, the first is, was Reservoir, and that was followed up by an album called Orchard, and then The Great Room, and then the most recent one a few years ago was Finding the River, and they're all full-length uh, original piano compositions, and I recorded them uh, through an independent uh, producer, my friend from high school, actually. His name is Benj Lipchak, and he is the owner and operator of Wachusett Records, so that was my label. Mm-hmm. Now, your poetry, did you, uh, have you published that? I have. Um Smaller literary journals. So I, I had a couple poems out in uh, the the Atlanta Review and Main Street Rag. Uh, those those were a while ago. And then more recently, um, there was a journal called Anima that published my poem. Um, an online journal called Recovery Quarterly, uh, and a, a college publication called Slant that I believe is out of. Uh, University of Central Arkansas, maybe, and um, a few others. Oh, Natural Bridge was another one more recently that, that has published well, me, my, my All right, I know that you, we're going to be talking in a minute about your books, uh, mm-hmm. Smile Beach Murder uh, and Murder on Mustang Beach. That does not sound, those the names of those books <laughs> are not poetic, all right? There's some, what was the jump between poetry uh-huh. And murder. <laughs> well, I think we all have a dark side. <laughs> and my my poems and my music are, they're me exploring my light side and my the side of me that loves nature and that loves to feel at peace in the world. And I think my crime fiction uh, is me exploring my darker side. Although I will say that both Smile Beach Murder and Murder on Mustang Beach, um, they they're on the lighter side of crime fiction, um, and they do they do tend to celebrate the natural world. So um, if you're a nature lover, if you're a nature lover, you will probably find uh, a lot to like about those two mysteries because um, there's a lot of nature in those books. Well, you know, it's <laughs> but, interesting. Um, I'm sorry, it's interesting that you mentioned this because uh, one of our prior guests uh, uh, on our show, an author, uh, Gillian Flynn, who is uh, uh, quite quite um, well-read and, and, and uh, uh, accomplished. But at any rate, I asked her, so Gillian, I read the, this one book that she had, and I said, it scares the bejesus out of me. And I said, where did you get this? Because this is, this is going to sound, I don't know how it's going to sound, but... Uh, several people uh, who have uh, written about her come up with the same line that I did. I said, "You're just such a nice person. How can <laughs> how can, can you write these scary st- right. stories?" And she said, "Well, that's interesting, John. This is way back." And she said, "That I haven't been asked about that, but when I was a girl, I used to like to make up stories to scare myself." <laughs> and I said, and she said, "And so now that's what I do." And yeah. I thought that's great. I mean, here's self knowledge <laughs> in in uh, in spades here. But at any rate, um, sure. there is such a. Th- I mean, you know, you, as you point out, and I will we'll talk now about uh, about Smile Beach Murder in just a second. But uh, mm-hmm. it is a sort of a little bit lighter than certainly uh, uh, some of the Gillian Flynn books, which, as I said, scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> right. So. Well, Smile Beach Murder, that, that is not set in Massachusetts. It's someplace Correct. else. Tell us about where, where <laughs> it was set up. Smile Beach Murder and the sequel, Murder on Mustang Beach, take place on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and that is where I live now. Um, and for the uninitiated, the Outer Banks are a skinny strip of barrier islands off the coast of North Carolina. And um, 
they they are the edge and i say that because there's an expression down here that i that i hear the old timers say about themselves <laughs> and they say the nuts roll to the edge and i just think that's so great it just captures so much so repeat you know, that repeat that again the nuts roll to the edge okay all right <laughs> So the edge, of course, refers to the geography of the Outer Banks. I mean, you, you really are living on a sandbar surrounded by water. There's the ocean on one side and the estuaries on the other side. And the nuts that roll to the edge are mm-hmm. the people who live <laughs> on the Outer Banks. <laughs> so, and I, and I include myself now as one of the nuts. I've lived here for <laughs> nine years now, so I say it with affection. Um, but I, I have observed since moving down here that um, the people who live here have a have a strong independent streak but it's one that is coupled with um a real valuing of togetherness and community because you know when you when you live on the edge you have to stick together in order to survive so that's right that was the that was the stance that i was trying to capture with affection in these mysteries so the outer banks are very um they they really inspire me i mean i've always been the kind of person that's strongly attracted to place and geography in general and um the outer banks uh they really speak to me and um you know get the creative juices flowing so i i knew shortly after i moved down here i thought i'm gonna write about this place someday and sure enough i i did what got you to do that i mean this is as i said (laughs) as i said this is a big jump from piano concerto, mm. piano concertos, and uh, and, <laughs> right. and poetry uh, about uh, life and its beauty, and, and and but murder, and this, these small <laughs> islands. Yeah, it's it's a complicated answer. So, I um, there there were two things that happened um, a few years ago. One was that I I was climbing. The, the local lighthouse down here. So there's a, a lighthouse about 20 minutes south of where I live. It's called Body Island Lighthouse, D-O-D-I-E. And um, it's a it's a 200-foot-tall brick structure, black and white horizontal stripes. It's very striking, really pretty. Historical, it's from the 1800s, and you can climb all the way up to the top. And I did that, and I was standing up, uh, looking around on the, on the very top and taking in all the water and the skinny strip of land that I now called home. And I thought, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to have this thought at the top of a 200 foot tall lighthouse, but mm-hmm. I thought to myself, if something were to go wrong up here, uh, 200 feet, I mean, eight stories, that's a, that's a long way to fall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sort of backed away from the railing and I thought that was really dark. And then I thought, well, that sort of felt like something a mystery writer might file away for future premise tragedy mm-hmm. at a lighthouse. So I filed it away. Um, turns out I didn't have to file it away for very long because a few days after that, I was reading a local news story. It was like a human interest piece about a woman on the, on vacation on the Outer Banks. And she's walking down the beach one morning and something washed up at her feet and she bent over and, and picked it up out of the surf and it was a message in a bottle which I just thought was so magical and it was it was still intact so she opened it and the note inside had been written in the 80s by an eight-year-old boy who was on vacation with his family up in the Jersey Shore mm. so through Facebook this woman who found this message in a bottle was able to track down the little boy who wrote that letter, who is, of course, now a grown man, and they struck up a correspondence. And I was just so taken by this, not only by the the sweetness and the connection that they made, but also um, just by the idea that a, a seemingly insignificant piece of communication in the form of a, a note dashed off by a, by a little boy long ago has its own fate. A powerful fate. I mean, that thing traveled through space and time to to find one individual person at a, at a certain moment in her life. You know, so mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. I was. I had these two very outer banksian sort of ideas: um, tragedy at a lighthouse, 
message in a bottle. And I said, I was, I was looking for a book idea. And I said, could I marry these things together into one book? And I did. <laughs> and that's, that's how Smile Beach Murder came about. But you seem to be more interested in how I went from, you know, light and fluffy to murdering people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I, the answer is that I had been writing uh, women's fiction for about 10 years, trying to get my novels of women's fiction published. And uh, they weren't they weren't getting picked up. I was getting rejections left and right. Um, I, I tallied up my rejections once from agents and editors, and the total was 428 over a period of 10 years. So I, um, I was kind of crying about it over breakfast one morning to my husband, who's also a writer. And he said, um, why don't you think about the books that are on your nightstand right now? And I said, well, they're all mysteries because <laughs> I love reading mysteries. And I said, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to write a mystery. You have to be really good at plot to write a mystery. And I, you know, plot is my weakness. And my husband said, well, just turn your weakness into a strength. And um, I struggled against that for a while. And then I came around to realize that he was right. So I got very intentional about uh, perfecting plot. And I ended up outlining the book that would become Smile Beach Murder. So that's how I came to write a mystery. Well, we're going to take a dive into each of those books a bit uh, in just a minute, but we're going to take a break right now. This is John Smetanka on With Respect. We're talking to Alicia Bissett, who is the author of Smile Beach Murder. Sounds intriguing. And a new book coming out called Murder on Mustang Beach and set down on the outer banks of North Carolina. We'll be right back. respect with Alicia Bissett, the author of Smile Beach Murder, and another book, Murder on Mustang Beach. And each of them is set in um, an interesting location, which we're going to talk more about now, which is the Outer Banks of North Carolina. This is John Smetanka. So, all right, Alicia, I have a, a parallel for you. We have in northern Michigan... Uh, various uh, places that, you know, somehow that there's a there's a blend there's a there's a a parallel to the Outer Banks in this sense that people, uh, for example, Mackinac Island, which is in the middle of Lake Huron, and it is traditionally has a load of history to it. It's got most of it is a state park, which is very beautiful. It is separated from the upper and lower peninsula of the state of Michigan by some five to ten miles of open water, and um, because it's far, it's farther north than, than uh, the Outer Banks, um, winter is a big thing there, and so when winter comes uh, and the ice on Lake Huron freezes over the Mackinac Straits, uh, people just are isolated there, and the population is um, not, not huge. But when the summer comes... It's, it's just packed with tourists. It sounds like very much like the area you're describing with the island you call Cattail Island. Yes, uh, I can relate. Um, Cattail Island is fictional, of course, but it is based on uh, real places in the Outer Banks. So I always say um, if you want to visit a place that's like Cattail, you could try Roanoke Island, which is just across the water from where I live, and that's where um, 
the last colony of, of Roanoke Island was. And you can also try um, Ocracoke, which is about an hour south by, by ferry, well, an hour drive and then an hour ferry by south. Um, so yes, the Outer Banks definitely experience a, a boom in the summer season. And uh, it does seem that ever since COVID actually, um, the, the summer season really doesn't ever end. It's sort mm. of tour, tourists all the time now. Um, lots of people have moved on here. Lots of pe people have made their summer home uh, a permanent residence. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's a very, very busy place all year round now. So. But, but, you're, but when we're talking the Outer, the outer Banks, um, if it weren't for ferry boats and a couple of stray bridges, uh, they would be totally uh, cut off from uh, the, the mainland of North Carolina, wouldn't they? Yes. Um, they're not as far out. I think you said um, Mackinac is five miles from, from land, and Outer Banks are much closer. I don't think it's more than a mile. I'm not sure exactly how, mm. how far. Um, but yeah, uh, Ocracoke Island in particular, um, you can, there aren't any bridges. You can only get there by ferry or uh, if you have a private plane. Um, and so that is particularly isolated. And the rest of the Outer Banks, thanks to bridges, um, fairly, fairly easy to access. Mm -hmm. so. Well, now you took that... Your, what all good writers, they tell me, should do, which is they, they take their own personal experiences. They write about what they know. And mm -hmm. so you're now down in the uh, Outer Banks, and you're writing about the, the location and the people are the people around you and the, and the, uh, the land around you and the ocean. Um, how, does that, how does that all fit in with a person who was raised in the in the s suburbs or the, the rural part of Massachusetts. <laughs> I mean, where did that come from? Well, like I said before, I, I've always been attracted to place and there's something in my personality. If, if you know anything about the Myers-Briggs um, scale, I, I'm an ISFP. <laughs> so I'm introverted and I, I really experience the world through my senses and and through perceiving that's what the p stands for and so i i have powers of observation now don't get me wrong i can be kind of flaky you know as flaky as yeah, the best uh -huh. of them but when i'm really when i whenever i travel somewhere new um or whenever i walk through the woods or something like that i have an ability to just really tune into my surroundings and um, and get very still and just sort of record everything that's going on around me. And I think that's where that came from. Um, when I moved to the Outer Banks, there's, it, it, was a, it was a new place to me. I'm, growing up in New England, I'd never, I'd never heard of the Outer Banks until I met um, my, the man that I would eventually marry when I was in college. And he was from Philly, and he used to go to the Outer Banks all the time. In the very first conversation we ever had, he was telling me all about this place called the Outer Banks and how much I would love it. And I said, I've never heard of the Outer Banks. I don't know <laughs> where, where is this place? And then I, uh, a year later, I went on vacation with his family to their, to their cottage on the beach down here. And I, and I fell in love. And um, there's, uh, there's just something to it. The, the light is very beautiful because of all the water. I think the sunlight just reflects off of everything so even on a cloudy day you have to wear sunglasses it's it's bright down here you know mm -hmm. and of course you have the maritime history and um the lighthouses and the the mustangs and um, oh, 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 oh stop there stop there the mustangs holy <laughs> the cow mustangs. tell me about the mustangs because they do buy a part uh, in your in your books they do so uh, there are about a hundred wild horses. They're called banker ponies or banker horses. And they live in up in Currituck and Corolla counties. So that's about an hour north of where I live, um, closer to the Virginia border. 
and you can go see them. Um, they, they are wild, they're not enclosed yet. Um, but you can go see them if you have a, a four-wheel drive vehicle. So they're, they live on the beaches in an area known as the four by four beaches because you can only, there aren't any roads. You can only drive on these beaches if you have a four-wheel drive vehicle. Mm-hmm. And um, there are homes up there, um, but there it's a very, I mean, that's probably the, the most isolated Outer Banks area that you can that you can go to is, is this, the four by four area where the horses are. And um, they live there and they're protected by a nonprofit called the Corolla Wild Horse Fund. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, that group tries to manage the land and, you know, promote awareness and make sure that people aren't approaching the horses or touching them or trying to feed them, mm-hmm. uh, which is a big no-no. You can't do that. Um, but yeah, the horses, the first time I saw them, um, it, was in, it was another one of those writerly moments where I, I saw this Mustang galloping down the beach and I said, that is, that is really magical. And I'm going to write about that someday. <laughs> I mm-hmm. don't know how or when, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm you know, filed it away. And then when I was looking for ideas for book two, the sequel, Murder on Mustang Beach, I immediately thought of that, of that particular horse. And I thought, what if uh, Cattail Island had a protected herd of wild mustangs? And what if one of these horses goes missing? And my heroine, of course, would swoop in and figure out what's going on and save the day. So that's where the inspiration for Murder on Mustang Beach came from. You know, this reminds me of um, some many years ago, I was uh, traveling around with my family, um, and we went through up the coast of Virginia uh, and went to Chincoteague and Assateague Islands. Oh, uh, yeah. And they have uh, wild ponies, Chincoteague ponies. Assateague is one of their... their um, yeah environment and they go back and forth and it's just a migration and it's all very uh romantic actually uh Mm -hmm. that this exists uh out of the reach of uh the big cities uh, of america Mm -hmm. but now let's let's go back to uh let's the the lighthouse because you know when you were talking about uh, your experience on top of the of this one lighthouse looking down and thinking, ooh, ooh, that's pretty far down. It'd be pretty scary to go down there. And you backed off from the edge. Um, it kind of reminds me of uh, the in the movie The Third Man. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but uh, uh, there was the uh, Harry Lime, the villain, uh, had his friend uh, on the top of, of the, of the uh, uh, Ferris wheel, uh, in Vienna, and he was looking down and almost was tempted to push his friend off because it was a murder case, yeah. and it was just, and he looked down, and, and he saw those little people down there, and he said, which, which of those little ants would you, yes, because that's what they look like, would you give up your life for, your, your happiness or whatever? Mm. And uh, he was a malign individual, uh, so, you know, you, you want to say, wait a minute, I might be one of those ants down there. But the point is, looking down from great heights can produce interesting phenomena, which you highlighted in in uh, Smile Beach Murder. Yes, and there there is a moment. Uh, well, it's hard to talk about without without giving away spoilers. I understand. I don't want you to do it. <laughs> I don't want you to give away the plot because it's it's. I by the way, let me stop here. I enjoyed uh, several parts of your book. Uh, in that book, and that, and that, number one was I enjoyed the descriptions uh, of the place, um, of the of the people. Another one, and then also the way this, the 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 people on the island organized themselves, because it reminded me of other places that I've I've been and seen, and in that the local people and the local shops and the local uh, geography uh, conspire together to pres- to presume. To, uh, to show an atmosphere which can be mysterious, and that's what you did with this one. So that was good. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I, 
I know what you're saying about this idea of um, small towns coming together, um, uniting for a, for a common cause. And I do wonder if that's uh, one of the, I don't want to say one of the aspects of all cozy mysteries, but I do think a lot of cozy mysteries have that small town feel where mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a wholesomeness, um, there's, there's mystery and there's people you know, getting bumped off in these small towns, <laughs> but there's also a, a, a redeeming sense of people coming together to save each other. So. Well, and then uh, you talk about cozy mysteries, and that sounds mm -hmm. very much like uh, the the description of a, a British uh, uh, genre of fiction, which is cozy, cozy British murder murder mysteries. Yeah. And uh, I like those because they're all different kinds of settings. Generally, right. some sort of a big estate. So most of the time, they're it's rambling or they're falling apart or it's come on hard times or right. it's so elegant that the people. Uh, are just the, the characters of the things that, which are interesting. Anyway, before we go any further, I'm, we're going to have to take another break. Um, and we'll come back, we're going to talk about something else in your background, which I think blends into what you've described so far. This is John Smetanka, run with respect. And we're talking to Alicia Bissett. Alicia is the author of a great book, which I enjoyed very much, Smile Beach Murder. And there's a sequel to it called Murder on Mustang Beach. This is John Smetank. We'll be right back. back on With Respect with Alicia Bissett, an author, a pianist, a composer, a poet, and has written two books, Smile Beach Murder and Murder on Mustang Beach. We're going to call them Outer Banks Cozy Books Mysteries. Uh, this is John Smetanka. So, Alicia, when we broke, I said we we're going to talk about another aspect of your, of your background, which I find fascinating because it sort of blends into what you've said so far, and that is you are a bird watcher. I am. How did I'm you get curious. into that? <laughs> well, uh, back when I was first married, so I was, I was in my 20s, and my husband was a teacher. He taught high school English. And he was invited to chaperone a field trip one summer to the Galapagos Island. Oh, yeah, I highly recommend. <laughs> and oh. I was lucky enough to go with him. So we were both chaperones and we uh, went to the Galapagos and I saw blue footed boobies and I saw albatross doing their famous mating dance. And that is when I realized I might be a bird watcher because this is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's what kicked it all off. And now I'm lucky enough to live uh, in the flyway, the Atlantic flyway, which means that uh, it's, a, it's a portion of the world that many, many uh, different migratory birds use um, to migrate seasonally. So... Um, on any given day from my back deck, I can see ospreys, bald eagles, all different kinds of owls, woodpeckers, purple martins. I mean, on and on and on. Herons, egrets. It's just, if you're a bird watcher, Outer Banks is a great place to come. <laughs> what, how do you think that this resonates with what you described about the rest of your life, your background, and that is, I remember you, right in the beginning, you talked about the, the pathways in the um, sort of the water, uh, the, the high water p park behind you, uh, your house. Mm -hmm. um, 
Were there a lot of birds there? You know, I'm sure there must have been, um, but I don't remember that being something that I was really into or aware of as a child. Um, but nature, but just, nature, that on but the nature hand. for sure, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I definitely grew up with all the suburban birds like robins and cardinals and morning doves and things like that. Um, there was a. We used to spend a lot of time in Vermont as as a family when I was growing up, and there is I'm not I'm not going to get the name of it right, but in the area of Woodstock, Vermont, or it might have been Queechee, Vermont, there is a raptor center where you can go and they have all these um, raptors, you know, owls and eagles and birds like that that have been injured in the wild and now they're being rehabilitated. Mm. at this place and that also um sort of predated my albatross and blue-footed booby experience but that was the place i used to love to go and you know it's it's sad seeing birds in cages of course but it's good to know that they're being cared for and being given a life that you know the best life that they can live considering their injuries um but there's there's just something about flight and flying um and just the freedom um, that you can sort of feel while watching a bird that um, you don't really get that from anything else. Mm -hmm. You know, it's again, it's interesting, the parallels. And uh, I'm thinking about parallels to the Outer Banks that uh, uh, some of my listeners who are in the Michigan area, we have in, in, mm. uh, in, uh, audience around the world. But um, one of the areas in northern Michigan not Mackinac Island, but uh, to the uh, northwest on the, on the Upper Peninsula is called the Sceny, S-E-N-E-Y. It's, a, it's a, uh, a wildlife preserve, and it's a place where bald eagles uh, are, are nesting, and, uh, mm, wow. and they are magnificent to watch. In fact, there are places where you can drive off the side of the road, uh, park, and they, and they have... Uh, uh, platforms where you can, with they have mic, uh, what do you call it, uh, telescopes, and you can watch the uh, the, the nesting uh, for oh, the, the eagles. It's so fascinating, and there's many other birds as well. And they, it also it's a, I guess, a migratory uh, stopping point for the birds going north and south. And the, about uh, a month ago, uh, my fiance and I were on the beach, and we looked up. And there was, in a tree, right above the lake, Lake Michigan, um, the most beautiful, big, bald eagle. I was, oh, and just, wow. and just stood, sat there, you know, on the, on the limb, uh, and was surveying all of his domain. And then we got, the closer we got, finally, he decided, well, they're a little bit too close now. So he took off, flew around, magnificent animal flying through the air, the flying experience you just described. And he went around us and I went to a tree uh, about another 100 or 200 feet away and, and nest or not nested, uh, uh, rested. And uh, I loved it. it was great. And I can see why people <laughs> just love to watch and to identify the great variety of, of uh, bird life that's all around us. So it's just great. Yeah, there is definitely magic in it, and there's there's magic in just how they how they navigate. You know, they they have stuff in their beaks that I can't remember now, but there's some kind of composite material in their beaks that allows them to line up with the Earth's magnetic fields, and that's how they get. It. I mean, it's it's crazy when you think about it. It's just it's, mm -hmm. it really is very very special, and something about it captures the imagination I, I have a movie recommendation for your listeners who might who might be interested in in this stuff and mm -hmm. if, if you're a bird watcher um there's a movie called winged migration it's a documentary um and it's streaming we watched it recently and i can't think of which platform but it's one of the major ones and you can stream it it's made about 20 years ago and it just follows different types of birds around on their 
migratory paths all over the world. There's very little speaking. It's just this absolutely mesmerizing photography. So yeah, winged migration, check it out. Well, we're going to circle back now to Smile Beach for a minute. And uh, um, every, every book, especially where there are sequels, which is what you're doing here, uh, has some continuity. And the continuity here is in the nature of the heroine, who, in uh, I love this, I got to love this, uh, works in a bookstore <laughs> in uh, Cattail Island and uh, had been a, a reporter, and you were a reporter up in uh, Massachusetts, but uh, has a, uh, a, 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 whatever life brought her there, and has, becomes a whole new world for her, but it's working in a bookstore. I love it. Bookstores are great places. <laughs> Bookstores are magical places, indeed. Uh, early drafts of Smile Beach Murder, she... She did not work in a bookstore. She was she was merely a newspaper reporter. And I was lucky enough that an early reader suggested, why don't you put her in a, in a bookshop? Mm. And I, as soon as I made that switch and put her in the bookshop, uh, it just opened up this whole different dimension of her personality. And she, Callie, my, my heroine, was then able to explore uh, these different books that that meant something to her in her development as a person. So I, I didn't intend Smile Beach Murder to become this, you know, PN to crime fiction, but I'm no. glad that it did. I'm glad that it did uh, turn out that way. So in Smile Beach Murder, she is reading uh, a book by Mary Higgins Clark, and she finds a lot uh, of parallels between that heroine and her own life. So. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of um, you. You have a a, 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 a a touch of this. You you pick up, for example, uh, Mary Higgins Clark, who is an author of uh, mystery stories, uh, voluminous, very famous, very well uh, received and, and and by the reading public. Uh, and uh, you you talk. Not only about that, but there's several other parts of reality, not all fiction. I mean, the, you didn't just create Mary Higgins Clark. You didn't create the other uh, fascinating things that you brought into this fictional community. Um, but it reminded me of uh, Anthony Horowitz, to, who uh, is a prolific guy in England who uh, came, was the creator of uh, Foil's War and now a number of mysteries. Uh, mystery stories, and he has taken this to a fairly well uh, of bringing actual what he considers actual reality um, as a part of this this totally fictional event, and I I um, I just found it an interesting device that is uh, different than, for example, Jane Austen or or some of the other great writers. Uh, that where their worlds seem to be much more completely created and self-contained. Um, but if Horowitz goes out and brings in the, the, uh, the real world. You yeah. did the same thing. I like that. Uh, yeah, I like that comparison. <laughs> and, um, I, yeah, I, I, think, I think it makes the reading experience fun, you know? Mm -hmm. gives 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 readers something to relate to or they can say oh i i love mary higgins clark too or yep. you know, oh i didn't i didn't know agatha christie was a surfer or you know whatever so, yeah i think yeah I, I, it's it's uh it's a it's a device i don't mean that in a, in a mm -hmm. bad sense it's it's a way sure. of engaging a different part of your audience that that you know packing you know the uh the last of the mohicans or uh, mm -hmm. James Fenwick Cooper or whatever doesn't they don't use that they're more of the the total fiction right. picture so all right you've got two books what's next and you got two um, minutes to tell us about it okay I, I, I won't need that long um, I'm, I am working on something else a, a novel unrelated to the first two and okay. I don't want to talk about it anymore because I don't want to let the steam out of the pot. But That's all right. Do you have, 
I do have something cooking, uh, but Murder on Mustang Beach is the, the sequel to Smile Beach Murder, and it comes out May 16th. So I'm very excited about um, getting ready to promote that and uh, going on book tour next week. So uh, it'll be it'll be fun. Well, that's great. I I'm a pleasure. I'm very pleased that you gave us some time and to chat about uh, your work and your background. Uh, before your next exhausting book tour, I'm sure that it, uh, they'll put you on the treadmill and you'll say at the end of it, oh, my God, do I have to do this again? At any rate, Alicia Bissett, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I enjoyed your book, and I recommend it to people uh, to give it a shot. Uh, this is John Smetanka, and with respect, and remember until next time, our motto, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.